Welcome to the Gutenberg Deep Dive Podcast, Episode 7, The Valley of Silent Men, by James Oliver Kerwood. The Gutenberg Deep Dive Podcast is your monthly review of a best-selling novel from 100 years ago. I'm Mike, and with my co-host John, we'll be exploring these literary gems. As a reminder, this book and all of the books we discuss on this podcast are available for free download from the Gutenberg Project. A link is in the podcast description. As with previous episodes, we'll start by discussing the author and then giving a quick plot summary, followed by a general discussion of the book. Then we'll wrap it all up by giving the book a score from 1 to 10. Before we jump into the book, a quick announcement about next month. We'll be reviewing The Sheik by Edith M. Hall, which is a desert romance novel. As Mike and I may not be the target audience of that book, we'll be joined by my wife, Beth. If you haven't already, be sure to subscribe to not miss our first guest reviewer dealing with the hot mess that is this podcast. With that, oh, so smooth transition to Mike's collected notes about the author. Man, that was like silk, John. My compliments. (laughs) We're getting better at this. (laughs) Uh, Fun fact for the audience, John and Beth actually met. Uh, in the desert. So really apropos for, for that. The part. book is actually about our first date. That's what I understand it to be. <laughs> Very surprising. It was 100 years ago, actually. So, All right. So let's talk a little bit about our author for tonight's book, James Oliver Kerwood, born in Owasso, Michigan in 1878. Supposedly, Kerwood's great uncle was a novelist, Captain Frederick Marriott, and his mother's great-great-grandmother was a Mohawk Indian princess, you know this is true just because it's been written about somewhere anecdotally. It's so on the internet, it must be true. <laughs> that's right. And the internet, of course, is the arbiter of truth. So theoretically, he comes from a family of, of somewhat literary nature. Just by way of very quick summary, there have been around 180 motion pictures based on or directly inspired by his novels and short stories. One was produced in three versions from 1919 to 1953, and at the time of his death, and how many times have we read some iteration of this, he was the highest paid per word author in the world. Not per page, (laughs) not per weight, not per book. This one's per word. Okay. Not not per wit, like some of our previous authors. (laughs) Little context for him, he was given his first gun when he was eight. He began writing adventure yarns when he was nine. He was expelled from his school in Owasso for truancy and indifference when he was 16. He toured the southern states afterwards by bicycle, sold proprietary medicines. What does that mean? Well, he made them up. Okay. 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 Snake oil. He was a snake oil salesman. One step short of putting the cocaine in (laughs) Coca-Cola. So unlike a lot of our previous authors, he had no problem with his parents. Uh, Got along pretty well with them. He left high school right before he graduated, but he actually tested in to the University of Michigan, which he quit to become a reporter. He had studied journalism when he was there. He goes off to become a reporter. Canada noticed him writing a lot of books that were becoming popular, and they hired him to write about the Yukon and Alaska for the purposes of tourism, which brought him a lot of notoriety and money because of the books he published based off of it. Now, Canada did pay him for this, but they only paid him about 51000 in current money. So he didn't get rich from that. He got notoriety from it. This helped him become so successful that he became an avid hunter for many, many years. He traveled in the North for a very long time, but he actually later on came to become a conservationist 
ceased hunting and felt very strongly about saving both land and the animals on the land. He actually served on the Michigan Conservation Commission for many years. Well, and, and as we'll discuss later on, obviously, this is the setting for our book today. And it's, I'm assuming is a setting for many of his books was kind of the, the Great White North. That's right. And in fact, nearly every book that he wrote was in some way, shape or form about the Yukon, about that area, and how that pertained to his personal life as well. So he was a contemporary with Jack London. A lot of his books shared many of those themes. In fact, he actually had a book that was about a dog who sledded in the North, made it. Might sound familiar to some London fans out there. He was married. So again, unlike some of our previous creepy authors, he had some issues with his first wife. They used to argue vociferously, but there was nothing strange about that. He had two kids out of that. And although they argued uh, and did end up getting divorced in 1908, there wasn't much else to it. He seemed relatively happy with his life and the people around him were pretty happy. So they had two children from that marriage and he later on married Ethel May Greenwood, who was a school teacher who he met a year after his divorce. They had one child out of that marriage who regrettably died when the airplane he was piloting crashed in 1930. So this is a, a while after uh, this particular book was published. Uh, he marries Ethel. And, which is his second wife. And they traveled to the Hudson Bay for their honeymoon. Now, John, you've been up to Alaska. You know this section of the country. The Hudson Bay, of course, is gigantic and frigid <laughs> at almost any time of the year. And he coined a phrase, which I thought was interesting, and I've heard many times. He called this whole area God's country, which is funny. I have heard that many times before. He's the one who actually built that into his his books to describe it. And man, I think that's accurate. He also, by the way, supposedly coined the phrase dead or alive, which is a phrase that he uses in one of his books. He actually uses it from some Canadian Mounties who are quote unquote finding their man. So it sort of pertains to that whole lawman ethos that he's got built into his books. While he was traveling the Bay Area with his with his now wife, they were up there for almost a year and he actually, the both of them actually built a honeymoon cabin themselves. It was a log cabin and they lived in it. So this guy really loves nature. I mean, really loves nature. Well, we could talk about this next week, but Beth and I did the same thing on our honeymoon. We <laughs> headed up to Canada and we built a log cabin. Now we only had five days, oh, so okay. it's probably not as nice as his cabin was. No, um, although but, you're but an it, engineer, so <laughs> well, you know what? And so it's still standing, of course, obviously. But uh, this is pretty standard stuff. I, I I was actually surprised you and your wife did not also go off and build a cabin for your honeymoon. Well, we did the reverse. I mean, you and Beth met in the desert and then went to the Great White North for your honeymoon. Yeah. Yeah. We met in the Great White North and then we went to the desert and built a sandcastle. You know, kids these days, kids these <laughs> days, they all, they all want to turn around tradition. Yeah. Well, you know, you got to buck tradition somehow. <laughs> and I'll tell you, building a sandcastle in the desert, not as much fun as you think. <laughs> anyway, I'm sorry, we digress. No, that's, I think it just adds a little flavor. So he had been a writer for quite a while. He was not a highly successful writer at first. Unlike, again, many of our previous authors, he Always knew he wanted to be an author in one shape or form, but he gradually built his audience and that's what brought him his success. Uh, of course, there was a real desire in the country for a while about this adventurism. Uh, many of our previous authors were to the West. He was to the North and in fact had a really tremendous impact on how people viewed the North. One of the hallmarks of his books, in addition to this, this northerly focus, 
is that his characters had a lot of mental and internal struggles. There was a lot of dichotomy about their beliefs and how they perceived of both what they were doing within the context of the book and what they wanted to achieve. And I saw that come out in this book. Interestingly, he himself was a pantheist. So he developed a lot of these beliefs when he was out in the great wide north and apparently was almost killed by a grizzly bear that could have killed him easily, but left him alone. And after that, he said, man, I'm a pantheist and I love nature and let's save all the animals. Ironically, most of his books, instead of necessarily following through on that, end up having a quick or a happy ending. Okay, lastly, he optimistically published this article for Hearst Magazine in June 1926, quote unquote, here's the title, I Shall Live to Be 100. Well, he died when he was 49. He died in the spring of 1927. He was bitten by a snake or a spider, apparently. The wound was not treated well, and he died of a blood infection and kidney failure in Owasso, in his birthplace. He left an estate which was valued at nearly a million dollars, most of which he bequeathed to his wife and children. He willed the mansion that he built, which is beautiful, to his hometown, and it's now called Kerwood Castle, and it's a museum in his hometown. So overall, not an extraordinarily eventful writer or life for a writer as compared to previous ones, but generally a pretty interesting guy. Didn't seem to suffer from the hubris that many of our other authors did, and whether that's because he died so young before it could really sink its teeth into him. I mean, he built a castle and you know a mansion, but at the same time, whether it's because he spent so much time in the North where there's just a very different mentality about this whole thing, whether because he was much more of an outdoorsman, whether that led to it, he seems like a more grounded author about more what I would consider a standard professional author versus some of the more celebrity approach authors we've seen in the last couple of books. Yeah, I would totally agree with that. And I wonder if some of that has to do with where he wrote and where he traveled. He was not out in California. He wasn't down in Texas. He wasn't in Manhattan. He wasn't in these places where there's a lot of glitz and glamour or this desire for quick wealth. He was in a place that even at that time was much quieter and where he traveled was much quieter. So you've got to imagine that impacted his work in what I would consider to be kind of a positive way. I don't know if I buy the whole he coined God's country, but I might buy that one more than I buy the he coined dead or alive, which we know actually came from RoboCop, who would then say, <laughs> dead or alive, you're coming with me. Yeah, so, that's true. But I, I don't, you know what, I don't remember the timing of RoboCop. It may have been before this book. So I'll have well, to Well, I did think up. it was weird that you're only legally allowed to say that phrase in a robot voice. So <laughs> I, it seems strange that it would originate with Kerwood. Dead or alive, you're coming with me. That's, <laughs> so that's from The Valley of Silent Men. For those who haven't read it yet, it's actually about a robotic Mountie <laughs> who breaks out of jail. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> a, guy, a guy was really forward thinking. <laughs> Before we get into the plot summary, two quick notes. One, this book does have some twists and turns in it. it it's and, and Mike, you'll probably agree that that it's part mystery. It's not really meant to be a mystery, but there's certainly some mystery aspects involved that don't get wrapped up until the last 10% of the book. So if you want to skip this section or read this book first before you listen to this, that will probably help you enjoy it more, I believe. The second thing I'll bring up is that there are definitely some French names in this because, of course, it's from Canada. I am 
most likely going to mispronounce some of the words. I could not find a pronunciation guide for this 100-year-old book. So I'm going to do my best. And if I'm off, then one of our five subscribers can please email me and let me know that I'm an idiot. <laughs> please. <laughs> Mike really looks forward to reading those emails. I can't wait. <laughs> All right. So for those of you who have either read the book or are ready to have it mildly spoiled for you, I begin now. 400 miles north of Montana in the small village of Athabasca Landing, James Kent lay on his deathbed and gives his confession for a murder he did not commit. James Kent is a member of the Canadian Mounted Police, a skilled tracker, and generally known as a straight and honest man. So this confession is met with extreme skepticism. He is visited by a strange and beautiful woman named Marette, whose presence baffles Kent and his longtime partner, who senses something odd in the girl's relationship with the Inspector Kedsty. Days later, when he finds out he is not in fact dying, he attempts to recant his confession, but is trapped in a legal trap of his own making. Kent escapes the hospital, but he is caught on his way out of town and lands himself in local jail, ironically one he himself designed to be escape-proof. A local lawyer teams up with Moret and breaks Kent out of jail, but another twist, Moret brings him back to Kedsty's house where she is staying. When Kedsty is killed the next day, Kent and Moret make a run for it down the river and into the North Wilderness. Their boat is broken upon the rapids and they are split up. Kent, believing Moret is dead, spends half a year hiking and hunting, hoping to find the lost home of Moret and at least bring her spirit back to her family. After a long, hard journey, Kent finds the Valley of Silent Men, a hidden valley surrounded on all sides by mountains, where he finds not only the man whose life he saved through his false confession, but Moret alive. The story concludes with explanations of Inspector Kedsty's death, his unknown acquittal from the murder charges, and the pending marriage of Kent and Moret. The end. And, <laughs> and I feel like I really sucked a lot of the life out of the book with this. <laughs> I don't but, think so. <laughs> but you know what? This is more than you could actually find in terms of a plot summary than I could find almost anywhere else on the internet, which is surprising because this, and no, maybe it's not surprising. The book was made into a movie. And I think there's actually a couple versions of it. But when I saw the plot summaries for the movies, they took significant license with adjustments of it. One of them talking about how Kent heads off to actually this Valley of Silent Men is where there's a bunch of these criminals who are living in this valley, and that's where the, the outlaws go to escape justice, which is not at all no. what the, what this was about at all. But they must have felt it was better to have a cool outlaw valley where guilty men could hide from the law and the law wouldn't dare get – so it, it seems that they took this story and then, as we see with a lot of movies, took a lot of liberty with changing some some of the facts. Yeah. So anyway, let's jump into kind of some plots and themes here. Before we get into in-depth, I'll tell you, I looked on Goodreads, where again, I always look to sign to see what I'm getting myself into. Out of five stars with 172 ratings, this gets a 3.85. We'll get to our scores later, but I, th I think that's a pretty fair rating. You know, sometimes we look at these books, we had a couple that we thought were real stinkers. And you look on, on Goodreads and it's like four and a half stars, almost five stars. Everyone says greatest book they've ever read. And I'm like, you people are crazy. Oh, they're they're also wrong. Just totally. Uh, well, well, yes, they were. 
<laughs> now that we're not in that episode and they're not going to listen, they were objectively wrong about yes. some of the some of the previous books. There's there's no opinion needed for some of those things. They just stunk. <laughs> we're not reading any more westerns from a certain author because it was just not good. <laughs> So, but, but overall though, the author seems well received, if not overly celebrated, which I think is probably more in line with who he was more in line with the author you described. There's not a lot of crazy hubris. There's not a lot of fan adoration rolling out for this author. Just a lot of people who say they enjoy his general writings. Maybe they sometimes have a little too much of a happy ending. And this certainly had a happier ending than I thought we were going to get. Yes. Yeah, for sure. And and it's funny because I have I took a note here and I'm going to jump down to it. I kept waiting for there to be a major plot twist at the end in that I kept thinking, and it's just because some of the other books that I've read that have these kinds of escapist fantasies from a person who's in a jail or on a deathbed, I kept waiting for the very last chapter to be that the doctor walks in and finds him dead in his bed. And that the whole thing was like his last dream he had of running away with this girl he just met into the great and living happily ever after. And that was his, and that we're going to get back to reality because that would never happen. Right. <laughs> but no, the way this author goes, no, we're going to have the happy ending and he's going to get the girl and everything's going to be okay, which I guess is fine. it is funny because not only does he telegraph so clearly uh, what the ending is there's no in between it's just hey the plot happened and now it's over and he's happy and all the last i'd give it charitably 40 pages of the book describing how much he loves this lady is now going to culminate in him and the lady getting married uh, roughly (laughs) i'll be honest i didn't I don't skim, but I may skip a word on occasion. And the last five or 10%, I'm like, yup, got it. Yup, got it. Okay, yup, got it. Um, (laughs) And and I want to bring that up now because I thought that that was probably one of the two weaker parts of the book. So so let's say this book, in my opinion, and Mike, you can tell me your thoughts, is part mystery, part action, part romance. Yeah. And I think that of those, the action sequences were the best written. I thought that- I thought the times when they were on the river, when he was escaping out of the hospital, when they were escaping out of the jail, when they, whenever they were on the run, I thought that was where the author was in his strongest place in terms of writing. The mystery was generally well done. He left you a couple of pieces, but he didn't like hammer in the, hey, note the hair, note the hair. Note. It was just kind of a passing note of, if he finds the hair, that's interesting. You're like, it's probably not her, but then you want to show that maybe it's her. So he leaves a couple of clues, but I almost forgot about it until he brought it up at the end. So I guess it was subtle. I, I never would have guessed. It's not the kind of whodunit where all the clues are in the front and you could figure it out because he just hides information. And then finally, the romance part. And that was a part I didn't really care for because I thought it it read as you have a 30-year-old protagonist. He says he's 30 years old who falls so head over heels in love with the girl he first sees that he's acting in like an 18-year-old would yeah. in terms of how he's behaving towards this girl. And I was surprised the author would write a 30-year-old that way. And I guess the only way I could come up with that is that either he still thinks that way or in his mind, a guy who spent half of his life basically alone in the woods, would not have matured enough. But I'm probably giving too much credit. I think it's just 
not well written how fast he falls for this mysterious, beautiful, perfect, I will devote my entire life to you girl. Yeah, I I am in 100% agreement with you about how all of this sort of comes together. I, I have to say when the book opens, and I was glad that you had given me a heads up at first because it opens with a conceit. Essentially, the book says there are many tales of the North and here's one of them. So I thought that was almost interesting. Almost. And then when you get into the book, I really liked the first, let's call them 20 pages, because it was building a mystery. This guy is lying on the bed. He thinks he's going to die. He's done this deathbed confession that frees someone else. Everybody thinks he's lying about it. He feels weak. Then he finds out miraculously he's not, but now he's got to deal with the fact that apparently he did lie to free this other guy. Really interesting stuff. And there's a little funny subplot sort of funny where he hires a guy to go do some work for him over the two days that he's lying in the bed. And then the guy betrays him in the span of two days to this other guy. And when he escapes, he beats the living lights out of the guy. So, all right. So this is all interesting. And in fact, even the female protagonist at the beginning is interesting because I, I liked her character when she was introduced, she was introduced as a bit of a cipher. She was not your traditional damsel in distress. She wasn't your traditional flirt. She really breaks the mold in a lot of ways. She's an interestingly written character. And in some ways, I think the rest of the book did that character an extraordinary injustice because it turned her into a, an object, not the subject that she was when the book started. So I really liked his mystery, but like you referred to, I feel like it could have used so many different twists. And in fact, I think there are two big weaknesses to it. One is the romance. I've got to tell you every time. And I, I even, as I was reading, you know, I put down these notes like you do. And he has this one line later on in the book where he says, the light, the cabin, Moret. And I wrote, okay, enough. Then he says, <laughs> 10 pages later, I love you. He whispered, nothing in the world can stop my loving you. And I said, seriously? So I did that numerous times. The thing is that takes up such a good chunk of the book that it distracts so much. So big weakness, number one, the romance, big weakness, number two, to me, all of the actual denouement of the mystery happens what you would call off screen. It doesn't involve him. It doesn't involve her. And some of the biggest parts of the book, the most important parts, at least in terms of resolving the mystery are not related at all to the characters. So I liked the fact that it teased a lot of stuff without, like you said, beating you over the head. I feel like he should have continued that. Certainly, there could have been more action in that latter half. But I think you're right. The way he wrote action, you can tell he actually experienced these things. The way he described nature, which was very well written, almost poetic, the the sense of how things flow, you know, when they're in the water together and he's losing track of her and the rope gets cut, that's almost pulse pounding. It's just the way that he flubs it. He doesn't stick the landing when I think it's most important in that book. And yeah, I found that disappointing because he really had some motion up until that point. I want to go back to your point about how he treated Moret as a character. And, and I, I couldn't agree more in terms of when she showed up at first, she's so in control of herself, seems so smart, so confident. Like she blows – Kent out of the water with just her attitude. He's like, my God, I, I can't even phase this woman. And she drops so rapidly into the damsel in distress 
prototype, I'm probably using the wrong word there, caricature. She became a caricature of a damsel in distress. Yes. Suddenly. You know, she went from a, the kind of woman who could level a gun and shoot a deputy in the arm. Okay. Gotta to like, wow. That. Okay. Here we go. We have we have now a 100-year-old Princess Leia prototype, you know, who could grab a blaster and fight her way out of a tough spot. But literally 20 pages later, she's no longer that. She now needs to be dragged through the rain, dragged onto a boat. She'd do nothing but make toast and breakfast. And that was really sad to me because I thought she would be much more control of herself. And you never see her in control of herself like she was the beginning, even on to the end. You know, even when he finds her at the very end, she's kind of an emotional wreck. Oh, she lost him. Okay, you know what? I, I know you loved him because you knew him for a week, but it's been like a year. If you were as powerful and strong of a woman as you appeared at first, you wouldn't be this way. You wouldn't be this broken up about the whole thing. So that was kind of disappointing to me. I did enjoy the fact that every time he was escaping, and I'm sure now he's leaving town, something happened. That that was, in my mind, I was surprised again and again. I'm like, okay, he's making it for the river. Ah, didn't make it to the river. Wow. Okay, I have got such me. respect for that. You got <laughs> me. He's in the jail. Or he's in the jail. What do you mean you're going to the inspector's? No, go to the boat. My God. And so he kept almost escaping and then not escaping. I wasn't sure what the plot would be. Again, it was hard to find a summary. So when, when they talk about him escaping jail, I expected the whole escape jail to be the first 10% of the book and the rest would be on the run. But no, all the running is in the town. 65, 70% of the book is just trying to get out of the town. And I actually liked that aspect of it. It surprised me that he didn't get out of town every time he tried. Under nothing, None of his own plans ever worked. Yeah, no, no. In fact, they failed pretty spectacularly every time he tried. And I did like what I think that allowed him to do was to better sketch out the actual characters within the town. And one of the downfalls of so many action novels is that so much is happening so quickly, you don't spend time with characters. In this case, I feel like the fact that he was in one room for the first. 30, 40 pages of the book, that he's in the town. You get to know the doctor that was treating him and why the doctor was so horrified that he misidentified this death-causing sickness he had. You get a sense of that inspector, Kedstai. You get a sense of his friend who ultimately ends up being the real protagonist of the book and solving all the problems. You get a sense of- <laughs> Of, off screen, uh, of course. Off screen, yeah. yeah. <laughs> While he's out hunting, apparently. Yeah. <laughs> so- I liked that and I loved it. I guess in the modern parlance, right, this would be called subverting expectations. You expect the action, you expect the escape, you expect the winning, and he didn't win at all. And coming back to your comments about Moret, in fact, there, there's two things I would say. So Moret, in that case, she levels this gun, right, at one of the jailers, and she actually shoots the guy. So again, I did not expect that. And I, yeah. I loved it. She reminded me in that moment, this is one of my favorite John Wayne movies, actually. So True Grit, this character, uh, I think it's Maddie. And it's this extraordinarily tough character, puts up with all this stuff. She's young, she grows older. But the thing is, True Grit, the sense that your character is your character, no matter where you are, and no matter how hard the world is, you're still going to be yourself. In the very short time we had spent with her, you could kind of get that sense of her character. I thought he did a great job up until that point. The other character, I think he did a disservice to, but I would love to have spent more time with him. So maybe I give the author credit for this. Is this character called Dirty Fingers? Yep. <laughs> <laughs> 
dear listener, that's the lawyer who teams up and helps get Kent out of jail. And the backstory on this guy is great. Yes. It's a great backstory. And and the mental image of this very portly. Oh, yeah. Slovenly. La- even. <laughs> slovenly, lazy, fat guy who, though he sits on his porch all day, people come to see him because he's just so smart. And so you have this like maybe – Good version of Jabba the Hut in your in your in your in your mind that he just sits there. Everyone comes to him, but he's not going anywhere. He complained about the half mile walk to the jail, <laughs> like you know. And some of it's uphill. I just want to point out some of that was uphill. I'm going to have to sit down and get a breather. And, and we've all known someone like that too. I mean, this is a hundred year old book, but I think we can still relate. And the character does such a great. The protagonist does such a great job of using a thoughtful process to flip this guy from being this slovenly, doesn't really care lawyer to being this impassioned guy that he used to be. And I loved that part. And then the character disappears. Just gone. Just gone. He's integral to the rest of the plot, but he's vanished. And I would love to have spent some more time with him, especially. Because when they escape, he set up everything. He set up the boat, he set up the supplies, and Kent sings his praises a couple times. But you would have liked to have made a jump. And I understand the whole book is written from only one point of view. So you'd have to change the way the book is written to do it. But I would like to have seen a scene of Dirty Fingers sitting on his porch, like watching the boat in the middle of the night float down the river, just kind of chuckling to himself that once again, Dirty Fingers wins. You know, like I would have liked just a little bit more closure on that. I think that the book for me set up that I would like to go back to this setting and I would like to go back to some of these characters. I would actually like to see Kent and his partner out hunting some of the criminals because they they bring up some of the hunts they went on. They talk about some of the people they've hunted down who, again, even as just in passing mentions of characters, sounded interesting. They sounded like short stories that I wanted to read, but they weren't part of this story. So I don't know you and I probably have to look up, are we just reading the wrong book in a series that has a lot of these characters that we just kind of picked up just the worst time you could at the end of a trilogy or the end of, you know, a five book series or a book, a series of short stories. And unfortunately we would get all that had we read it in the right order. I'd have to look that up, but there are a lot of interesting characters in this world. I also think the setting of the great north of Canada is a great setting. And it's not something I'll say I have much experience with in terms of reading, but I like the fact that you can have in town, you can have the modern amenities, but you don't have to go far out of town to be man versus nature. And it's obvious when they talk about, you know, they go down river and you're on your own. The train doesn't head up that far. And if you don't make plans, you're dead. And they have a lot of discussions of people who are helped in cabins or just laid low for five, six days being sick. The protagonist himself, one of the reasons that he fakes a confession is to help someone who helped him when he was sick and dying. And so he was trying to pay back a favor. So you get the feeling that there's a lot of touch and go life and death stuff going on in the North, even though we're still in a modern world because this is not written as if it's like the 1700s this is written as if it is late 1800s the trains making its way north you have all the amenities but they don't extend so i liked that a lot you know i read a book a year or two ago and it was about the yukon 
the first half of the book is all about these prospectors and how they have to settle their land and the disagreements they have and how they pass it on and how they make money and don't make money. And one of the biggest parts of it is they go, they scatter at certain times of the year, then they all have to come back because of food and the scarcity of water and the difficulty of hunting and all of that. And where the author has this, I'd call it a peripatia, where his fate suddenly takes a switch is as he's relating the story. And it, and it takes a long time to get to this point where the where Kent is talking about it, where the whole crux of the book turns on him freeing this guy. And the reason he freed this guy is because in the North, food is more valuable than law in a lot of ways. Yeah. It is the most valuable thing. And this one guy tried to save his wife the starvation that they were experiencing and then somebody else steps in and the whole book turns on the nature of what it's like to live in the north and i i found that fascinating and it totally rang true and in fact when i looked up the title of the book i also found most of the places he refers to athabasca the valley of the silent men these are real places so it's you can actually go hike in these places and i i think that just added that authenticity of what he was doing Actually, I looked up the town where this takes place, and yeah, it still exists, and they still call themselves the gateway to the new Great North is what their website currently says. And so this was really – the train ran up to there, and that's kind of where it is. Further north than this, there's it's not really worth for us going, but feel free to hike north if you want. It seemed to be the kind of general feeling it had. Yeah, I, I would definitely agree with that, and and I loved it. What I will say in those series of books – because this was relatively early on his, in his authoring career, I think he does weave a lot of these elements together into a more comprehensive fashion in some of his future books. But again, died at 49, I think he probably would have produced more. I wish he had come back for a sequel about the adventures of Kent and, and his partner and Dirty Fingers the Lawyer. It would have been great. <laughs> Dirty Fingers travels south and takes on the Supreme Court in a very odd Kerwood novel. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So I think that pretty much wraps up the discussion. This this is a smaller book. It's an easier book. Let's let's just kind of jump ahead and, and talk about our GDD rating scheme. We give each book a score from one to 10 and say whether or not we'd recommend it. Mike, as always, I'm, I'm going to give the honor to you first. So I give this book a six. Largely, that's based on the strength of the character work, on the mystery and action elements, also, the description, which was both beautifully written and not nearly as lengthy as some of our previous authors that we've reviewed while still achieving the same effect. I take it down because I think it does feel unfinished in a lot of ways as a writer or a writerly perspective. There was a lot more he could have done. The ending has almost nothing to do with the characters as we've seen through their eyes and I think that was a real takeaway. It kind of takes the air out of it. And the romance, I just can't get past. And this is just me. You can only say she's got beautiful white skin so many times before I start thinking, well, get a tan. <laughs> <laughs> Do something. <laughs> I think it was just proof that she had never been far south. She just never had. <laughs> I think that's – as an Irishman, I can relate to that. <laughs> All right. So a six from you. I put down a seven for very similar reasons. I would say it was a fast read that I enjoyed reading. Okay. So, so 
for me, the most important thing is, do I want to keep reading when I hit a chapter and start the new chapter? Or do I go, all right, that's enough for now and put it down. This one, I wanted to find out what happened. I wanted to find out how's he getting out of the hospital? How's he getting out of the jail? How's he going to escape the inspector? I wanted to find out how they're going to continue to progress on the book. And I liked that a lot. The action scenes were interesting and I thought very page turning. I too took away a couple of points, the overly done romance over the top, I thought, but I'm not a love at first sight kind of guy. So that just didn't really ring true well with me. And the end I thought felt unpolished. I felt like they tried to wrap it up quick. And like you say, I would like to have seen some of the action that happened off screen on screen to tie things together. So six from you, seven from me. About lines up with where Goodreads was. As always, they add a couple extra points because they love every book they read or they wouldn't bother (laughs) reviewing them. Yeah, it's not called crummy reads for a reason. (laughs) That wraps it up for tonight. Join us next month when we review The Sheik by Edith M. Hull with a guest reviewer. A link to the book, as well as our contact information, can be found in the podcast description. Special thanks to our podcast host, Red Circle to the Joy Drops for the intro and end credit music. And most especially to the Gutenberg Project. And until next month, thank you and good night. <laughs>